For some reason, I am skeletal. Uh, yeah, uh, I was just about to ask that. Come, Craig. Hi, Craig. We will defeat ye, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm not nice. I'm evil. God. Yeah, I think in conclusion, I can actually be quite confident in the fact that my skeleton character was not Skeletor. <laughs> I'm still keeping it in. Ladies and gentlemen, masons and miscreants, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the Movie Autopsy Podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And today, we're stealing the Declaration of Independence. I would... Ugh, leave, the... it, leave it where it is. Don't put lemons on it. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was going to, like, hum the main theme, but I don't actually have any idea what that sounds like. <laughs> You know, like a da-da-da-da-da. No, um, but yeah, today we're covering National Treasure, the 2004 Bruckheimer production, uh, directed by Turtletob, starring Nicolas Cage, and a uh, source of many memes. Oh, boy. This so is, many uh, memes. This is going to be an interesting one. So let's talk context. I think that's where we want to start here. Um, Annie, where... I, I, I obviously <laughs> brought this film to us, but... Um, yeah, you but tell I was us... interested. Oh, absolutely, you were interested. So tell me a little bit about what this film is and what it means to you. So uh, National Treasure is one of those movies that, for me, was something that I saw when it came out in theaters, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I hadn't really seen it since it came out in 2004. I mean, there was... There was kind of some fun flavor to it. There was another movie that came out the year afterward called Sahara with um, Matthew McConaughey that I also enjoyed. I don't know. I just kind of enjoy adventure films in general. Um, so did my partner. He watched it too, and he was kind of like younger. We both saw it in theaters. And uh, let's just say this was a really interesting rewatch. Yeah, no kidding. Um... For me, I, I I think I saw this in theater. I'm not 100% sure. Either that or I had it on DVD. I know I've seen this movie a few times and I have not seen it in well over a decade. Um, but the thing is, um, what I think is particularly important about this movie is that it does live on very much outside of the viewing experience as a kind of cultural touchstone because this is kind of the quintessential bad movie. And, like, this is from 2004, so this is before the casual internet, I want to I call it. Um, there's an old term. Uh, it's called the Eternal September. And what that refers to is this idea that the internet, because it initially started as a college-to-college, college, it was generally a piece of academic uh, infrastructure to begin with, that there would be an influx of new users every September when the freshmen came in. And the Eternal September refers to this concept of the internet was open to the populace at large and new users and implicitly idiots would continue to flood in forever. So, and that's a much older concept than 2004, but also like 2004, I think is also before like the, the eternal, eternal September where like the internet became a mass cultural appeal, like before smartphones and ubiquity of the internet and so on. So... Like, National Treasure 
is one of those films that actually was mocked a lot and was passed around in like that kind of bad movie watching sense in what isn't the early internet, but I guess maybe you could describe it as the early social internet. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a fair way to put it. I mean, people were mocking this at around the time when we were starting to see social media platforms on the rise. So that kind of critical discourse that we've talked about in previous episodes, this is about the time when that was almost fully on the scene. Yeah, because like the other thing is like when you look at this era, um, this is also in a similar, this is actually in a similar era with, you know, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson. And that is another one of those cultural artifacts is where people would just post these really long extended gifts of scenes from the movie, but they would put in funny dubs. Like they would just put in subtitles that said stupid things. Like, yeah. why not just take the Eagles? Shut up. Or um, there's a really like famous one that I can't recall where the whole thing is just they load Frodo into a trebuchet and fire him in Mount Doom. It's <laughs> it's kind of great. So like these were the movies that were really big around the time of these early kind of culture because like it's it's it, that that moment in history has passed but to me and to i know a large group of people who i know and a lot of friends of mine you can make someone laugh by responding to something with we're gonna steal the declaration of independence <laughs> yeah so yeah um this has kind of been the quintessential bad movie for a long time and it's existed strongly enough in that capacity that I don't feel people have actually felt the need to rewatch it. And, like, it has existed as... And that's the thing, is, like, I haven't seen this movie in 10 years, and it's... I mean, I have a very different context for it now, but I was kind of satisfied with having it be part of the culture and not something I actually engage with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that became clearer why we might want to do that after watching it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I never really felt the need to return to it. I mean, it was so much a part, and still is so much a part of, of meme culture. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Why would you go back? I, I, I'm not sure I would describe it as part of meme culture, just because specifically, while it is mimetic in the, you know, definition of the term... It's before uh, we started really referring to things as memes. Yeah, and I meant in the contemporary moment. I meant now it's still such a... Like, it's a trenchant part of meme culture now. It may not have been, you know, like, may have been sort of like a proto-meme thing originally, but... Uh, yeah. Definitely well, not now. No. And, like, that's the thing is, it has faded. Like, this is... At this point in time, at time of recording, this is a 14-year-old movie, so it's no longer a modern thing. But then again, like, to a certain generation, I think it always will be. Because here's the thing, yeah. and this is this is going to just make me sad, but in my brain, like, I, I think everyone's brain gets kind of baked in around 14. Uh, because in my mind, Y2K is still a recent thing. Same. And, you know... Same. <laughs> it's It's been twice as long between now and Y2K as it was between Y2K and the day I was born. So I'm just, ah. I'm just old in my mind now. Yeah. So, you know, th this movie and this, like that early 2000 period is weird and kind of, there's a lot of stuff that penetrated really deep into culture before everyone kind of segmented and kind of, I guess, balkanized pop culture might be a way to describe it. Yes. I think that would be a, an accurate way to describe what happened. 
But yeah, so let's um, let's review this. <laughs> Cause, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I actually want to lead uh, with this one because Go. I think I'm actually Go going ahead. to be very harsh with this one. And this one's a C minus. <laughs> okay. All uh, right. Do tell why. Okay. So it's, it's a kind of a quintessential Bruckheimer ad- adventure film, but, and it, it, it stinks of Bruckheimer. Oh, good Lord. It stinks of Bruckheimer. But the first of all, the premise has aged very poorly. Um, you know, we've all gotten way more woke and all that, and it was it was problematic at the time, but not in a way that we were really aware of, as both as children seeing this, but also as a society, we weren't having the same conversations and we didn't have the same cultural context to analyze the problems with this film. Um, so, as a as a time capsule. It's kind of cringy, kind of, we're not proud of that moment in history. But also, as a film, it is kind of vapid and soulless. Yeah. And so, like, the the big thing is, like, there are funny moments in this film. The thing is, this film has plot, but no character, I think. And so... When you when you know what the plot is, when you know exactly what all of the beats are coming, you have time to sit and breathe with the characters, and they are not satisfying. So in terms of this being a story, I think it feels very fundamentally as well-produced as it is. Because it is very well-produced. What about you, Annie? So you're giving it a C-. minus. Um, God, this is really straddling the line between a C- and a D for me. And I think the reason why I'm going to give it a C- is because of the high production value. I do feel like this movie was well put together in terms of um, location scouting. I think the soundtrack is very good. Um, I think that it's an attempt to make an action-adventure movie that engages with American history, which is, like, that's fine. Um, Like you, I'm going to say there are severe writing problems with this movie. There is a lot of stuff that is either implausible or just so surfacey that the audience can't fully grab onto it or it doesn't grab their interest. Um, my husband and I watched it together and we both fell asleep while watching it. And that's not because it was late at night. It was actually fairly early on. So it's boring in parts. It has pacing issues. It's way Um, too fucking long. This movie is two hours and 11 minutes long. And you know, I told you that, um, Bruckheimer said that the original edit of this movie was four hours long. Like he had like a whole Wagnerian, uh, Ring of the Nibelung cut to I'm, this. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Turtle Taub is no villain vu. Sorry. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Uh, yeah. So actually, and there's one point I want to bring up before we go any further with dissecting this okay. film. Is I want to talk about, is this movie worth seeing? Because this isn't something that's in theaters. This isn't something that's part of the contemporary discussion. And I know a lot of our viewership will probably actually be familiar with this. Um, And if you're not, um, you know, is this something that's worth diving into? Uh, So, Annie, I want to hear your thoughts because I I have some, but I don't want to prime you for this. Like, I want to have this fresh. Okay. 
So, um, as a person who regularly teaches film in her classes, I don't tell people not to watch things. Like, that's a regular policy of mine. In fact, I recommend that people engage with media that is problematic and or just generally bad. And the reason why I ask them to do that is because I think sometimes it's important for people to make up their own minds about media as well as to see the cultural context in which films are being made and why these particular media come out at the time that they do. So I'm going to recommend that people do actually watch this movie. Check it out. Um, We'll talk about some of the issues that we had, but um, Doc, what about you? Would you recommend that people check this movie out? Okay. Um, before you do that, I do want to ask one more question for you then, um, okay. because you recommend that people engage with media for themselves. So I think a qualification of this question then is, I think if someone hasn't seen it, it's probably worth checking out just to understand what we're talking about. But my question for you is people in our shoes, people who have seen this movie and are familiar with it, but don't remember it that well and haven't seen it in a long time. Is it worth it for them to revisit for the sake of this kind of discussion or analysis? That's, I think, a more specific question. Um, so yes, it definitely is. I'm somebody from that generation who saw it in theaters, and I remember this movie quite differently from how it went down. So I think it's worth engaging with it, uh, not just to see how different the movie is, but even to think about your own difference in reaction. Well, I want to qualify one thing in that statement. It's not how different the Mm. movie is, it's how different we are. Just to get really artsy and deep for a minute. (laughs) I should say, when I when I say that, what I mean is how different our perceptions of the film are. Because for me, this was almost like Home Alone. Remember when we talked about Home Alone and people are like only remembering certain things about the movie? I yeah. only remembered certain things about National Treasure. I did not remember very much of it. So I think it's more like our memories of the movie have overwritten what it actually is. This is true. This is true. So how about you? What would you say? Mm, I'd say that this film is worth watching for the sake of discussion and for the sake of analysis. I do not think this film is worth watching for casual entertainment value. No, That's what I you're not going to enjoy it. <laughs> it's just how it is. Well, I think you might in the sense that some people like to watch films for being bad, you know, get drunk or stoned and laugh at them. Like, this is a great movie to, like, mystery science theater and riff on. Uh, yeah. It's and I'm sure there is a riff tracks on But it, it yeah. does not, I think, stand up as a modern cinematic experience. No. No. And, like, I hate the terms, but I, like, because... Words me- have meanings, but we've destroyed all of those meanings. But this is a movie yeah. that you can enjoy ironically, but not a movie I think you can enjoy unironically. Though, that is to say, if you unironically enjoy this movie, that is completely valid, and I'm glad that you got something out of it. We're not going to denigrate anyone for their taste. This is just kind of no. where we're coming from. Anyways, so, on to mechanics. How this movie works. So, I'm going to start, because here's the thing, this this is a childhood movie, and... I still do have fond memories of it, and I did get some joy out of the rewatch, so I do want to start on a positive note. And one thing that I thought was actually surprisingly good about this movie was the soundtrack. He says, having not remembered the main theme, but that, that <laughs> yeah. is a thing, though. Specifically, it's not how good any track on the soundtrack is. Um, there aren't that really that mem- many memorable themes. However, what I will say 
is that the way that the music is produced and intercut with the film is just shockingly well produced. And like that's kind of I think a bit of a Bruckheimer signature is like the it can the plot can be whatever the performances can be whatever but the production quality is top notch and one sequence that really drew this to my attention was the actual heist which I think was the highlight of the film for me and you have these two con- simultaneous concurrent robberies going on you have Ian played by Sh- uh, Sean Bean and uh, what's his name Gates played by Nicolas Cage. And both of them are committing two very different robberies at the exact same time. And when it cuts between them, there's two versions of the robbery theme, one of which is lighter and more kind of grand uh, and, you know, hopeful, more Indiana Jonesy. And there's another one that's got more of a heavy guitar riff. It's a little bit bassier. It's a little bit more threatening for like the rack em and load em, lock and load, shoot up the place kind of robbery that they're starting to commit to. And it intercuts between them. And that's just kind of a brilliant like thing that I'd never noticed before I watched this today. That's a really good point. I really like that. Yeah. I really like the soundtrack to this movie and I remember always kind of liking it. I think it was something new. It's also by, I mentioned to you, it's by Trevor Rabin who did a lot of game soundtracks as well, which is kind of fun. Okay. So you were into the music and you were into the heist scene. Um, Let's see, if I'm going to start off with something positive about this movie, I think one of the good things that this movie does is, just like overall, is encourages viewers to think about American history in general. Um, I think that's really important. I like that they go to buildings in D.C. that are important. Some of them, of course, are not the actual buildings in D.C., but locations in L.A., but they do tell people some things about, like, this is the National Archives. This is where you can find this, this, and this. Um, They do introduce some historical artifacts, although they make mistakes when they do that. Um, They are introducing people to history through popular culture, and I think that's kind of great. Although, I will say, I... (laughs) because I feel like this is in character is like, I wouldn't be surprised if Nicolas Cage actually did steal a brick from Liberty Hall. Uh, a hundred percent. You know, he's got that somewhere, somewhere on his Island that he has failed to pay for. Yeah. Right next to the dinosaur skull. He had to return. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Or the pyramid that that he bought for his tomb. Uh, Nick Cage is a crazy motherfucker. (laughs) He has the ego of, like, a pharaoh. It's a little odd. Um, But, yeah, so this movie introduces people to history. I think that that heist scene that you were talking about was particularly fun. Um, And I think it's just a well-set-up heist scene in general. It's it's pretty simple and easy to follow. It is. I want to actually talk about that scene for a minute because I think... Yeah, let's do that. Because I do think, actually, the heist scene does kind of set the tone for how we remember this film. Because the heist scene is really fun, and everything else around is kind of stupid, dumb ephemera. And it's like, it's dumb, stupid, it's fun. But uh, when I think of this movie, I do think of this heist scene, particularly because it's the most honest part of the film, where it's like, this is just really clever, it's cool. And I actually like it more than a lot of other heists. I I think I like this more than actually the heist in Ocean's Eleven, which this movie tries to be a lot, because it gives us the setup before the execution. And that's actually quite... I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it's rare because I don't, I haven't watched every heist film and I don't have them tallied in an Excel sheet to determine which ones do and which ones don't. But I feel like it is at least uncommon in big budget Hollywood films. 
And structurally, what's really fun about that is they have this really plausible, really cool way of going in, and then it goes wrong, and we see it go wrong in real time. So it's not just faking us out with, oh, no, this is going wrong. Oh, but they actually knew that was going to happen the whole time, and here's the reveal that shows why it was part of the plan the whole time. So structurally, I feel like it's quite distinct, and it's nice, and I like that. Now, the rest of the mystery and the clues sucks because it's just inventing more lies <laughs> yeah. and just making up uh, more bullshit. Uh, but, and or, like, bringing in ninth grade American historical trivia that makes people feel clever, but... Yeah. Because, like, <laughs> yeah. the, stealing the Declaration of Independence is fun because they're engaging... Because it's not actually part of the puzzle. It's a separate puzzle, is how do I get to this piece of the puzzle? And so in that way, right. that scene is just wonderful. And then the rest of it is... Meh. And uh, just the comedy beats around having the uh, replica souvenir, those were also yeah. really good. And they're actually important uh, yeah. to the plot. They're they're tied in really well. Like, that is the thing. The script... The script in this is actually quite tight. But the things that they choose to put in it are garbage. I think that's incredibly fair to say. I mean, I, I think that they had a core concept for a film here that is bombastic and ridiculous. But then again, if you think about the premise of Indiana Jones films, like you've got Nazis trying to unleash occult power on the world. Um, that's a ridiculous concept as well. So I think you're right. What's failing here is the execution of the concept in these very small details and not necessarily the core concept as a whole. Okay, I want to now now I want to get kind of critical because okay. I hate <laughs> the characters. Good oh, god. god. They're bad. Like they're here's bad. the thing, I love Nicolas Cage as an actor. Um there's there's a couple different modes of Cage. You get tired Cage, you get manic Cage, and there's like there's there's like two or three different versions of Nicolas Cage and Different directors bring out different energies in him. And this was kind of a boring cage, so I don't particularly care. But I hate the character of Ben Gates. Like Okay. I like I remember it I remember it being a low energy performance for Cage, and that's fine. I remember Sean being in it, and he's okay. But Ben Gates is a fucking chauvinist pig and he's not has no redeeming yeah. qualities. Uh Yes. Like, <laughs> oh, God, no. How, how, how do I say this? How do I say this? Like, um, he is, like, I, and I think chauvinist is kind of the, it's, it's the one character trait that I think actually stands out at all besides just being a dick to his friend. But there's a moment later in the film uh, after uh, Sean Bean rises up after threatening them with a gun and leaves them to die. And he turns to Riley, pats him on the shoulder and says, sorry for yelling at you. And that is the only time in the entire film where he is nice to him. And that's kind of fucked up. The first thing that we're introduced, the first interaction that he has with him is he's sitting in the front with Ian, Sean Bean, and Riley's in the back complaining. And he says, oh, well, we can just drop him off and let him die in the snow. That is the first thing yeah. he says about Riley. Yeah. And regarding, uh, what's her name? Sorry, the, not the character name. Abigail. Abigail Chase. And we actually had this discussion earlier before. We think 
I yes. swear to God, there was another movie with an Doctor Abigail Chase, and I guess I was wrong. <laughs> but like, it, the name feels so generic that, like, I feel like it must also be in another movie. I think it's just a very like action girl sounding name that you would expect from uh, like an exploratory movie. Actually, you, you know, know what, what I, I think mean? it might be? I think what? it might be the specific phrasing of Dr. Chase, because I think this might be House. Oh, <laughs> that's where you're getting it from. Oh, I think okay. that might be it. All right. That makes sense. Uh, and like, uh, so and talking about Gates and Chase for a moment, the first thing he does to her is he lies to her. Then, uh, he, and, like, this isn't a lexicon. There, there's actually, yeah. there's more stuff that he actually does on the first interaction. Uh, Is it okay if I kind of cut in for a second? Okay, sure. I, I, I was going somewhere with this, but um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure okay. you're probably going to bring up the same thing. So go ahead. Yeah, so there's actually quite a few things that he does during their first interaction. Um... So Abigail Chase is an art historian who works at the Smithsonian, so that means that this is somebody likely with a PhD. One of the first things that he does is walks into her office and touches some of the um, antique presidential inauguration buttons that she collects on the wall. Um, He kind of expands into her space. He and Riley are telling her about this kind of crazy cockamamie scheme that they have, expecting her to believe them, and when she doesn't, they're just sort of like, shocked at her um in terms of some of the things that he says to her at one point during the film i made a list uh so during one scene where he has kidnapped her and is holding her as well as the declaration of independence he says to her shh quiet please now shush she really can't shut her mouth tell you what i'll let you hold this if you promise to shut up yeah Doc, continue. <laughs> yeah, that that line was where I was. Oh, good God! That, that that's where the word shovness jumped to mind and would not leave. Um, but you did yeah. refer to the interaction that I was talking about in the first interaction, where he looks at her pins. And now here's the thing: in 2004, mansplaining was not part of the lexicon. I don't think it's entirely fair to call it that, and it's not specifically that. But there's that. I kind of think it is. It, it, it is. To be let, 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 let me. Let me. Oh God damn it! Do you say why you don't think that it is? <laughs> let, let me finish. Um, yeah. Because what, what? What? I don't think it's mansplaining specifically because it's not something that she is offered. It's something that he reaches out to impress her with. Is he looks at it and says, "Oh, you got the presidential pins." Oh yeah, no, it's you know you're missing one. Okay, okay. I found one once, and so. It's not him disregarding her explanation, but it is him looking around her off her space quickly, finding something, and then trying to be magnanimous and establish his own, you know, historical academic power in saying, because the way he says you're missing one, it seems to infer that she doesn't know that that one exists. Even though there's clearly Uh, space for it. He's establishing his dominance by presuming that she has less knowledge than him. Like, that's what's happening in that scene, which is why I think I sort of thought of it as a form of mansplaining, even if it's not happening in the typical format. It it absolutely has a very similar sociodynamic uh, kink to it, but it is not... 
uh, per se the exact same thing. And also, that's not, like I said, it wasn't part of the parlance back in the day. So I, I you know, I know I'm not, like, if there was, I think, a legitimate case of it, I think I would be happy to retroactively apply it. It's just in that specific thing. And... Because uh, I will say, like, as a female historian, that happens to me a lot. Oh, yeah, no, I, I am certain... Which I think, I thought it was sort of hilarious that it, it showed up in this film as just kind of like a regular interaction between the two of them and not really as a recognition of that. Like how, just how prominent that is for us lady historians, yeah. but. Was there something else that you wanted to add to that as um, well? Well, the romance sucks. Ugh, it's she is worst. literally a tr- She is literally a trophy. Um, yep. And oh, the Very other literally. the other thing he does, the other thing he does in their first interaction, is he tries to peg her. Yeah. Uh, he goes, "Oh, your accent, I recognize it. Is it from here?" Oh, like he's trying to Sherlock Holmes her and say who she is without getting to know her. And actually, ah, <sighs> uh, I just realized that actually probably does tie into the Maxa thing because she's not really American. Uh, yep, she's not really American, and she's an academic. She is the stuff that Gates and his family members decry throughout the movie multiple times. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah, that was another thing that I, I think it's sort of important for us to bring up here, is that um, Gates asserts himself into this intellectual hierarchy in a very distinctive way that I notice a lot in films, specifically about films where academics end up being present. And um, so I'm going to preface this by saying that I realize I could come off as an a-hole by saying a PhD is different and distinctive and makes you smarter than a BA. I don't personally believe that, um, but I do think that this film is making, uh, it's making distinctions between a sort of institutional academic and Benjamin Gates as a kind of organic intellectual, as somebody who has received um, some academic training. He's got a BA um, from Georgetown in history. He has uh, a degree in engineering from MIT, both of which are very hard things to obtain. Um, But these are mostly bachelor's degree degrees, I should say. Um, And so I think that's also partly why in that first scene when he walks into her office, like you just, when you do a PhD, it's for a longer period of time and oftentimes a lot more intensive than bachelor's degree work. So for him to presume that he has more knowledge than her when he walks into that office is very, uh, it's kind of a problem. Yeah, um, I did notice that throughout the film, um, you know, there's Gates kind of has a real persecution complex. He mentions multiple times about how historians uh, deride him or, you know, say that he's crazy, which is, uh, that's kind of something that's come into the American national discourse very prominently in, I'd say, probably the past five years. This idea that academics are all elites and there's no connection to people and that Therefore, their knowledge is uh, flawed in some way and should be discredited. I think that's kind of a problem, and the movie sort of perpetuates it. I'm going to interject here for just a moment. uh, Yeah. Because I'm having a specific thought in that I'm really glad that this movie didn't try to borrow more from Indiana Jones. Because if this involved the Nazis anywhere, 
then there definitely would have been some kind of anti-Semitic undertone to this intellectual elitism. A hundred percent. Like, I think it's 100%. not... A hundred percent. Like, I don't think there's anything in this film that indicates that, but I know that with certain creative choices, it would have been very easy to slip into that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and those two things have historically... Um, anti-Semitism and anti-intellectualism have been historically tied together a lot, so... Hey, it's 2018. We know that very well now. Yikes. <sighs> so sad. Don't don't we just miss the simpler times when we could enjoy dumb movies like this? Oh god, yes, but also kind of not because it's really important to understand how ideas get disseminated through films and how they reflect ideas in culture. It's good for people to be aware of this stuff so that when they see it they can be like I don't know if that's a thing, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, so that those were a couple things that I noticed, this kind of anti-intellectual thing on top of the blatant misogyny in it. Um, was there something else that you wanted to add also, Doc? Um, so going back to Abigail Chase for a second, played by Diane Kruger, um, one thing that was actually kind of egg on my face when we were in the preamble for this episode was I said that I hated her accent. And it turns out <laughs> yeah. that that's her real accent. But because it was called out in the film, I thought it was an affectation. Um, because it's because it's in the script. And, like, she is... She's not a character. She's just a follower. Um, there is actually, like, a little bit of kind of defiant spark to her when she's antagonistic towards Gates. And I like it, but that is immediately swept up when she basically becomes his hostage. And then... St- for some reason, falls in love with him. Uh, yeah, no. Um, Diane Kruger's character shifts from kind of like an art historian with a sense of ethics to uh, Aryan princess for men to fight over who gets stuck in a tower and is constantly in jeopardy. I mean, she still tries to protect the document throughout it, but... But then uh, she rubs acid she all very... over it. I, I, okay, that scene, (laughs) this is one of those movies that still gives me, like, um, nerd rage is what I'm going to call it, because, again, I'm trying not to come off as an a-hole, but I am an academic, so it's going to happen anyway. Um, Rubbing lemon on the back of vellum documents, no. Um, Hair dryer, no. There's a reason why those things are kept in in temperature-controlled conditions. (laughs) Like, if anyone listening to our podcast ever finds an old document, and by that I mean something from the early 1900s or beforehand, do not rub lemon on it, do not put it in heat, immediately, like, take it to some form of historical preservation society. Don't do this stuff. Museums had a rash of people... Uh, they saw kind of like a rash of people afterwards trying things out on the back of documents or photographs that their families had and paintings, and it was a preservation disaster. So don't do that. That being said, um, one, the only character I feel like I really do like is Riley. And that's, I think, because he's the chronic underdog. And even said so, there's a couple of unlikable things about him. But because everyone else is basically monstrous, like... I like it because it, there's a great mo- and also like this gets conflated with like like we do with Home Alone where we kind of remember the entire franchise more than each individual movie is he is the underdog in all this and um he says you know um oh my god 
I know something about history that you don't. Is this what it feels like to be you all the time? It's like, he's being a dick, but he's also <laughs> punching up, so I don't mind it as uh, much. Yeah. But yeah. he is, like, endearing and well-played and competent and proactive in what he does. So, you know, yeah, Justin I Bartha, so. good job. Yeah, good job, dude. Um, One of the other things that I kind of wanted to talk about very briefly, without going into excessive historical detail... Um, the history that's presented to us in this movie is incredibly, incredibly white. And oh, I yeah. think presents us with a narrative of both the history of the Masons and of the United States, um, which is devoid of black people and Native Americans and any discussion of race whatsoever. Um, I can understand that this is a family film and these are complex issues, but... Um, what's really kind of propped up in this movie after seeing all of these white historical figures is this real sense of possession of American history that I've noticed um, seems to come up a lot from white folks. This is our history. This is our heritage. This is our country, something which I hear a great deal. And it's coming to us from a movie from what? What is this, 14 years old now? Yep. So this has been going on for quite a while. And, um, you know, like there are Masons, there were black Masons in the 1780s and 1790s, like Prince Hall established uh, some of the first Masonic orders for African Americans in the U.S. So that would have been about the time that they are calling upon this history. So, well, let's be perfectly honest. When this movie says Masons, they don't mean historical Masons. They mean the Illuminati. Yeah, and I get that. Um. And we can talk about the Illuminati and conspiracy theories in a couple minutes, but what I wanted to acknowledge here is that I think this movie is selling audiences a very particular brand of American history, which American audiences at this time were heavily consuming. And that is a form of American history that is white male dominated, usually dominated by elite white males who claim often not to be elites. So they'll have a college education, but they won't be quote unquote in the system. And um, they also feel this sense of immense persecution. And that's a particular brand of history that it sells us. And it does so by erasing um, literally anyone of color from American history. So black folks played a very prominent role in building the United States, and they're just not included in this history at all. And then on top of that, the main black characters that we encounter in this film don't have very many speaking lines at all. And um, if and when they do speak, they are doing so in assistance to the white male protagonists of the film. And I think that's kind of disturbing, and it's worthwhile acknowledging that this is kind of what National Treasure is trucking in. And, like, that, that is, I think, where, like, I, I get really glad that there wasn't any Nazi gold in this, because that is, like, a straight vector for, you know, conspiracy theory nut job to the Jews did it. That is like that is a direct. You know, this in, in a his, in any kind of alt history get uh, storytelling, the Masons yeah. and the Illuminati is like playing snakes and ladders and hitting a snake square. 
it just takes you way yeah. back down to, oh boy, <laughs> this is not good. No, but Yeah, buddy, no. Buddy, I mean, no. I think this was like one step away from being Alex Jones's, you know, like just pure fantasy. Okay, so you, you bring up Alex Jones. That. So we have to talk about this because this is actually one of the things I yeah. really like about this movie is how much of a fever dream of a conspiracy theory every single aspect of the plot is. Because um, Americans are obsessed with that. Like, we yes. love conspiracy theories. But what's kind of interesting is, like, this movie, if if I did not grow up in this time, and you sh- if, if I saw this movie today for the first time, I would go, wow, 9-11 really broke people, huh? Because um, yeah, it, it did. I, I think that's like, what future historians are going to say about well, this thing, here, here, if they haven't here, already. Here, here's one thing I'm thinking, though, is that mm. uh, this specifically to me really evokes, especially, especially in the scene where they look at the hundred dollar bill. This invo- this evokes loose change for me. And this movie predates that by what? One or two years? I think two years. Yeah. So, like, yeah. the fact that it kind of tapped into that vein is a little scary. Can you explain to our viewers what loose change is? Okay, or so... listeners. <laughs> okay, so... To, to explain what loose change is, first we have to talk about 9-11 very briefly. Um, because 9-11 is basically the apocalyptic event that uh, sets off the 21st century for America. And we're still, as a society, recovering for this. Uh, when I was a kid, when I was younger, I should say, um, I was, I think, in a way kind of angry and scornful about 9-11. Not the event itself, but into how we collectively treated and reacted to it as a society, because you have pre- and post-9-11. That is a very definitive point in American culture. Uh, we started a forever war. There's a wonderful piece by um, Hunter S. Thompson about the start of the forever war. I think it was from the day after, yeah. the day after, the day after. And, like, that, that, it's so chilling to read and it holds true today. But what happened, though, is that the, it kind of it is the germination seed for a lot of American conspiracy theory thinking because it is very thoroughly incompatible with a just world theory. Uh, this idea that random acts of violence and horrible destruction in a way that is man-made in a way that is in a in a strength hold of security in new york city in downtown new york that that can happen so the explanation that a couple of hijackers got lucky or that you know it was particularly auspicious or particularly like the the idea that there that like that that there's so many conspiracy theories around 9-11. There's the controlled demolition theory. There's loose change. And loose change specifically is this idea that um, this was pre-planned in such a way that it is actually described in... Is it the dollar bill or the hundred dollar bill? Um, I think it's the hundred if I remember yeah, right. But if you fold it in this really arcane way, it <laughs> seemingly shows the two towers and shows them burning or something like that. This idea that yeah. this kind of imagery has been peppered around. And this is kind of the core of, I think, a lot of kind of like authoritarian, crazy conspiracy nightmare is that your enemy is both all powerful and thoroughly and inco- yeah. laughably incompetent. Because, yeah. uh, you know, yes, they have the power to orchestrate this 
person conspiracy, but also uh, they're stupid enough to broadcast clues into the open. Um, so, like, specifically calling on the image of the dollar bill, like, that invokes that so hard for me. And it's kind of, like, it's really not cool because that spread around. And we're still feeling the effects of that today. Alex Jones is a major media personality. And that's that's scary as a society. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was thinking about in this movie. And this is not to say that watching Treasure, uh, National Treasure will suddenly make you into this massive conspiracy theorist. Um, but what I think it does do is show the extent to which um, in American media we were engaging with ideas about conspiracy you know, before everything sort of happened in 2016 with our current president. Because uh, I think the discourse in the U.S., you're right to point to the fact that 9-11 is sort of this germination point for an entire category of folklore, urban legend and myth, and conspiracy theories. Um, but I, I think I've heard people in the past year sort of asking, well, how did we get to the point that we're at now? You know, like we have things like Pizzagate and all that stuff. And it sort of originates from, you know, the stuff that you've just described, the sort of willingness to find alternative explanations because we're not willing to believe in the idea that people are yeah. human or incompetent um, at times. But I also think this ties into that thread of anti-intellectualism because one of the other things that comes out of specifically the kind of formulation of the 9-11 conspiracy theories and things like loose change is this idea that the authorities are the ones perpetrating it. Um, yes. Because when and you look academics at, are when assisting you, them. I, I think the most yeah. comparable event before 9-11 is maybe Pearl Harbor. And that's when we're at war. That is a wartime act by a foreign nation, a nation state, not like these independent non-state actors. So there's kind of this justifiable framework. And there was a response. We were at, we went to war. I mean, I, I don't know the exact timeline of World War II, but I think we were at war or were going to be at war and then Pearl Harbor happened. I'm not going to get too into that. But the timeline is close enough that it feels like an immediate response. And with 9-11, we had, you know, we've been at war ever since. And even then, like, there's, there is no... And I think that is the other part of it is the enemy is hard to define because, you know, it's Al-Qaeda. It's this loose network. It took us until, what was it? I think 2012 when they killed Bin Laden? Yeah. So, you know, it took I think so. 11 years to find the ringleader. And even so, like, the the networks, and also we're culpable for their rise, and there's all, you know, the extra national upsetting coups and CIA plot stuff and this this whole complicated thing. But... One of the big threads is to explain how 9-11 happened without, you know, going it without just accepting the official story. It basically requires state actors on our side. It requires the leadership and the authorities to have willfully ignored and harmed its own populace. It requires the authority be wrong and sinful. So I think that is a core component that has made that myth so long lasting is because anything that refutes the theory is coming from a place of authority. They don't listen to Snopes. They don't listen to, you know, academics. They don't listen to the government. And so it's this homebrewed, and it also comes, like I said, again, at the beginning of this eternal September, where, like, the tools that ordinary citizens without 
connections and resources have to spread this information and these narratives began to expand at this crazy rate that was i i just think it was the perfect moment in time for this to never go away because it was the first thing of its kind yeah i think that's a really great point and now that you're saying that it's making me think a little bit more about the villain in this film, um, played by Sean Bean. Because I think one of the questions that we could get from people is sort of like, wait a second, 9-11? But the villains are British, and a lot of 9-11 fiction and media focuses specifically on terrorists from the Middle East, or Middle Eastern people who are labeled as terrorists. Um, I think part of what we see in this movie with uh, Sean Bean's character is his use of information as a new form of... Uh, I guess we could call it warfare or opposition to Ben Gates, who sort of represents American interests. What do you think of that? Um, I think it's fair to say that he uses information as a resource or as a source of his antagonism. Um, Because one of the things that's kind of, and this is like one of those things that's just funny to dunk on, is that he is Gates' intellectual peer by relying on Yahoo Answers, basically. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Which also kind of speaks, this is one of the things that does also bug me as a historian in it. Some of the trivia that they rely on in this film, like the the fact that there are 55 signers on the declaration, I that's basic knowledge. And for that to be used as a clue was, I thought, sort of funny. Um, because it's set up to make Gates look like this absolutely brilliant guy who can put these puzzle pieces together, uh, sort of something that's given out in middle school, as is, uh, the silence do good letters that Benjamin Franklin wrote. Yeah. So I was kind of like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Well, the, there, there, I, I have some thoughts about that. And okay. specifically this, I think this is one of the reasons that this feels kind like i think this is one of the reasons we consider this a bad movie is because this movie is really slick and well produced every the 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 end result as a filmic experience is not the best but but the thing is the production of it is absolutely brilliant because it is designed to cater to as wide an audience as possible and the thing that you want to do in a mystery is you want the audience to figure out just two seconds before the characters do. And oh, so that's use, a really good point. And so using yeah. these, you know, grade school history clues, you know, yeah. I'm half surprised they didn't cool. say, you know, sailed the ocean blue at some point. <laughs> okay. All right. I can see that. That's totally legitimate. And so I can see that being a way to help also build Gates' credibility. If he's sort of an audience surrogate, like it makes the audience feel like, oh, I'm smart. I get it. He must be a smart person too. Actually, uh, this this actually leads me to a really weird thought, because do it, because <laughs> here's what I'm thinking, is at this moment in history, we're actually looking at this kind of reverse historical revisionism going on, where we're starting to see more perspectives on, you know, people who were marginalized out of history, literally written into the margins, uh, you know, uh, African American activists and people who. Had, were influential and were basically left out of credit. I think, um, for example, uh, there's that movie com- that came out last year about the three women at NASA. 
Oh, hidden figures. Hidden yeah. figures. That's what. It, literally, hidden figures. Uh, we're starting to see perspectives like uh, we just having that blow up with uh, Scarlett Johansson about the Rub and Tug movie. Yep. Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, we have so many examples of history where it's it has been whitewashed and straight washed, and it's like, yeah, no. Um, this woman became a pharaoh and wore a fake beard and was buried as a pharaoh. It's like, oh, man, she just, you know, cross-dressed and made it successful. It's like, no, I'm pretty sure if we had the modern parlance back then, we'd say, like, that's that's a trans man. Or, you know, the pope who was a lady. Like, are we sure that was a lady pope? Or was that a trans man? Like, this, this, this is a problem that we have. And one of the things that that brings out in this cultural moment is resistance. And so I think part of what I think is resonant about this film is... And, like, you get that with, um, you know, uh, transgender rights being a thing right now, where it's like, no, no, in in grade school they said XX is girl, XY is boy. There's only two genders. And science actually says, no, it's way more complicated than that, but we taught you idiot science when you were children so you could understand and move (laughs) on. But they go, no. So I think to look at this, because when we look at the treasure trove, it's like this monument to colonialist theft. It's a Kunstkammer. It's quite literally a treasure house that is devoted to items that have been pillaged from other spaces, like the Egyptian stuff they were looking at. Yeah, and, and then they the Chinese food that the, dogs. Oh, yeah. I mean, just... Uh, which is... it's. I think it's ironic that I have not really seen too many reads of this movie as a defense of American imperialism, because... Yeah. That's what it is. That's what that moment is. Yeah. He stakes a claim to that of ownership. But to to bring Yikes. back to the the kind of disturbing thought I'm having is one that's because Gates is kind of an academic folk hero. I think is kind of a way to describe where he is arch, in archetypes. But because he is to borrow a phrase from Colbert, he is embracing his truthiness and he is relying yes. on this <laughs> fundamental grade school history. Uh-huh. In that way, he is establishing and reinforcing narratives that American society believes to be true and is resistant to the idea of changing. This idea Absolutely. of tearing down Confederate monuments, of, you know, condemning founding fathers for being slave owners and writing all men are created equal, is this whitewashed version of history is a childhood version of history, and letting yeah. go of it is painful. We are in the throes yeah. of that right now. So when I look at this film right now, I'm seeing that Gates is kind of like an academic Luddite in a way that is very reactionary. Is, and because yeah. he's being rewarded with success from this, you know, basically mantric, because all the stuff that comes out is not something that I think, I, th- I don't think things that are necessarily historically significant so much as they are part of the American creation myth. Mm. So in a way, he he is competing against Sean Bean. Sean Bean's character, yeah. Ian is using modern-day research, modern-day facts, modern-day ways of gathering information. He represents the new, and he keeps on par with with uh, Gates, who is, you know, reciting basically childhood mantras. And, again, the, the myth that he does follow is the myth of the Masons and of his family, which is told to him as a child, as a story by his grandfather. And it's his commitment to that 
and he is rewarded for being more in tune with a true history or for believing yep. more. So that's just essentially fucked up. because of an oral, essentially because of an oral narrative that was taught to him as a child. Yeah, abs- preach, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, absolutely. That's really fucked up. I mean, now that I think about it. Yeah, and that's why I was having the reaction to it earlier. Um, that I that I was, I was. Uh, this was, like, as somebody who does this work and and you know like talks to students and stuff and sees people who, because of the asymmetry of information dissemination in educational institutions in the U.S., um, I see a lot of these same myths crop up quite a bit. Uh, and it's just interesting to see that played out in a film. Like, this was, there were times where this film was, like, a little too real for me. And I, the film wasn't aware of it, which was kind of awkward and hilarious. Um, the one good thing that I also forgot to mention is that the film makes a distinction between people who destroy works of art and objects versus uh, those who attempt to care for them, which on the surface level is, I think, probably a pretty good narrative to have. It belongs in a museum. It is the it belongs in a museum thing, which is very imperialist and colonialist as a project. So I do want to temper that out and say that, that while there's at least this message of don't blow up things, only bad guys do that, uh, the good guys kind of do some really bad stuff too. Yeah. Um, I will say one thing that I kind of like is that Gates doesn't do it for money. He does get rewarded, which I think dilutes the message of the film very much. Um, but he does it to prove his family name and because he's seeking the truth, as misguided as the construct of fi- truth is within the framework of this film. That's the film's fault, not the character's fault. But he is devoted to a pursuit of truth and to knowledge. And, you know, he turned down a reward even though the movie... Like, I, I, I really hate that scene. First of all, because it explicitly calls attention to the fact that Gate, that um, Chase is a trophy wife. And also that, you know, they are materially rewarded with wealth, which plays into the whole narrative of the just universe where, you know, if you are a good person, you will be rich and powerful. Well, and also that plays into the sort of Protestant ethic of capitalism that we find so pervasive here in the U.S. of the idea that hard work pays off, but also perseverance through hardship and other people disbelieving you. You will be able to disprove them in the end through your hard work and you will be able to reap profits. You will get the girl, quite literally a phrase said in the film, as well as the treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Yuck. Um... (laughs) So, here's something I actually want to do. And we haven't done this in a long time, but I want to pull a Lucy here. I want to see how this movie might have been fixed. Because this isn't an entirely awful movie. I think it's aged poorly, but through things that I don't think, like, necessarily a lot of people were aware of. Or at least not a lot of people in the entertainment industry. And certainly not society at large. And while I think this movie is bad... I don't think this movie holds up it to a modern audience. I do think that there are enough interesting hooks and premises that, and there's enough good pieces of this movie that you could remake it in an interesting way. 
So I'm kind of curious to see if there is a good movie buried in here somewhere. Okay. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Because um, one line that I actually thought was fascinating, and it's a throwaway yeah. line, but like it gave me a vision of a better movie, is when they're looking through the archive, and one of the first things that Chase sees is scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. Uh, yeah. Because that is the first change that I make, is it's not a treasure. And you can still frame it as a treasure. You can absolutely have it be uh, pursued for reasons of money and fame. But if the treasure is knowledge and not artifacts that are explicitly yep. valued for intrinsic material worth, exactly, then I think yeah. that's a that's a fantastic tre- because then it's it's not a hoard. It's as not as a as dragon's as well. hoard. It's a secret library. It's a secret history. And so you know, like, um, but you know, like, it scrolls from the library of Alexandria. So like, imagine for a second that you've got you know scrolls from the library of Alexandria. Imagine you've got you know scrolls going back to the Ming Dynasty. Imagine for a second that you have. You know, books from, you know, um, the Institute Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft, you know, the books on transgender studies that were burned by the Nazis. Like, yeah. that's something where I think you actually have a ripe ground where it's still slightly problematic, really, to say, oh, you know, we secretly saved all this stuff. But when you have examples of things that are considered to be lost or destroyed throughout history... I think yeah. then it becomes about knowledge and it's not about material wealth. Like, there, I think, mm. is kind of a ripe ground to look at history and look at how history is changing, in particular. Mm. Okay. Because, like, that, like, the institute that I mentioned I like there. that. That, that is a, in, that was an institute um, headed by Magnus Hirschfeld, which basically yeah. was burned by the Nazis and contained all modern knowledge on, you know, trans uh, transgender and... You know, gen basically, it's it's the dark ages of gender identity theory. Yeah, because they yep. were an easy minority to persecute, and like that has come up in modern Twitter. Like that is a narrative that is only really now in this year starting to reestablish itself. That's a really great point, and I'm. This is also making me think about other points in history where knowledge has been destroyed, and there are people who have secretly kept it and protected it. So, a lot of people don't know this, but the only reason why we have, uh, you know, plays and poetry by Greco-Roman authors is because a group of Muslim scholars from North Africa kept it, and they translated all of these things. Um, into Arabic to preserve it for a really long time. So literally without them, we would not have that knowledge. Oh, I think that's you know another way a, to include You know what would be another great example this. of something you could throw in that library? Um, what? The Norse or, I guess, Viking oral traditions. Because they were transcribed oh, like the... by Christian missionaries. So, like, yeah. Im- imagine, like, that's a great secret society there. People who actually kept that oral tradition alive. You know? Uh, 100%. And you could have people from multiple... You know, places in the world, places that people haven't often heard of preserving these traditions, and that's their job. Oh, Doc, I think we have just invented the Librarians TV series. <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of have. Uh, yeah, that's what this is. <laughs> okay. But, like, well... <laughs> I, but I, I still think, though, like, what do you, what do you think of that, Annie? I, I think changing the, the identity of the treasure first of all, reframes the entire journey as being about historical preservation. 
Yeah, which is, and also, like, potentially to let the public know that this knowledge exists. Like, I, I don't know. I'm still a little bit, um, you know, I'm one of those people who's kind of a little idealistic about being a historian, and I still think that's why we do this stuff, whether it's accessible to the public or, or not actually matters to me, so... Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really great idea. <laughs> Why didn't they do that? Uh. And it, see, it, it's weird because I get so much of that from that one throwaway line, but that one throwaway line really hints at something that could be so much better. Because everything yeah. else is just stock, like, you know, museum fodder. You've got the food dogs, you've got the sarcophagi, you've got the knights, you've got the sets of plate mail. It's just like, it's not even anything that's actually historical. It's just, this is what you would see in a museum. That is literally what the production design says in that scene. Yeah, and I... It's not necessarily that those things don't have historical value. It's that when people encounter these objects in the museum, they encounter them as dead objects that really don't seem to be connected to the present or anything else. So we just oftentimes look at them as being like, oh, you know, food dogs. Wow, those are pretty interesting looking and weird. Um... And yeah, that's the signifier that people are getting. Like, oh, that that's probably from a museum. He looks like he's discovered a museum treasure hoard. Yeah. Which, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I what else can we change? First of all, like, I, 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 th I, I think the question is, do you think we could have made this a good movie back in then? Or do you think it's easier to try and remake no. it now? It's easier to try and remake this now. Um, we can make the cast a lot less Aryan. Yes, thank you, please. Um... So, I am thinking a female scholar of color is the protagonist for this. Um, maybe even somebody like Tessa Thompson, who's kind of like young and up and coming, would oh, be cool. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. If we're doing a gender flip, can we make the Dr. Chase character Rami Malek? <gasps> oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I do. I do love him so much no it's so yeah, good yeah that'd be great but uh, I, dream, I think dream casting is maybe taking this a little bit too far into the just kind of fantasy it definitely element. is but I, I think i'm more yeah. interested in looking at kind of how we make structural changes to this Ooh, this is a good point um because like the the idea of changing the treasure i think is big because it does necessarily change a lot of the structure and I really like the idea because one of the things I think comes out of that is I think it makes it a gotcha movie because I think it's reasonable I think so too. to frame the entire movie as being about pursuing the treasure and then the real treasure was history or you know the friendships we made along the way yeah. and the friendships you made along <laughs> the way <laughs> but um because I think there's also there's also a chance there to have people from different agencies pursuing these people. So, for instance, if we still want to keep this weird conspiracy train running, um, you could have, say, people from, like, the FBI chasing after them, trying to destroy documents so that the public doesn't find out about it. I think you could gain a foothold to do that plot point. Okay, sorry. If we're, if we're doing document destruction, I think they need to be pursued by the CIA. Ooh, yes. Yeah. Oh, mm. no. He, here's the other yeah. thing. I also... <laughs> another thing I think that is also important is I think this needs to be a globe-spanning adventure. Oh, yeah. Because one of the reasons that this works kind of so well and 
I think so well to bad purposes, I guess is a way of describing it, Yeah, is because this is all about American history and American history trivia solving a puzzle designed by an, Ameri- an American Mason Lodge, but, basically. But it's basically just a very shallow understanding of American history there. American history is transnational history. Like, there are events that you could pull on for this to get us thinking about the ways in which we're connected to the world and, you know, like how the country got established if you want to do that. There are definitely places you could pull on. I think it just depends on what locations you want to be at. Like, a lot of adventure movies have, quote-unquote, exotic locations, which oftentimes that's just a catchword for the global south, uh, which tends to be spaces we've colonized. If you want to bring that history to the surface, feel free. I'm okay with yeah. that. I think, I think that would be great. Here's one thing I think that you could do that would be very interesting, is you go yeah. to these somewhat typical locations... Yeah. And these these locations that are typical, that there is an established kind of, you know, um, Euro-Anglo-centric, American-centric uh, yeah. narrative around. But then right. when you get to the historical clues, they require you to engage with a local history. Oh, yeah. And so that you yeah, actually see... Idea. So, they you know, you have someone come in with this idea of like, oh, yeah, you know, um, we're looking at the River Kwai and the bridge that they built that was so cool. But then, like, someone who hid a clue there was actually, like, one of the workers and, you know, stuff like that is... Yeah. Where you see the suffering and you see the results of these things and you peel back the layer of history that is written and you see the layer of history that happened. I think that the could be a thing- good way of structuring things. Um. So one of the things that I think would be kind of difficult here if you do want to keep this about american history you can't avoid jim crow or the transatlantic slave trade you just can't so i think maybe a movie that includes material that was kept by an enslaved african person or somebody who was freed later during emancipation that's something that could also be of use too and you're just naturally going to get that when you look at these sorts of older histories to talk about the u.s yeah, because here, here's the thing. I actually, I'm think because the other thing that this movie has some DNA in common with is Dan Brown novels. Uh, I mean, that's the danger but, of it, is it could become that quickly. Yes. However, I am thinking of a specific one, because I, I read a couple of Dan Brown novels when I was younger, and okay. they're okay. Uh, there's a lot of issues that I wasn't aware of at the time, but I, they're still enjoyable, decent Okay, I'm not going to say they're well-written, but they're competently written thrillers. <laughs> um, but yeah. I th- I think it was Digital Fortress. Um, but um, the clue was the some guy designed this horrible virus that would inflict this kind of massive damage to the world. Like, I think it was a computer. I, I don't really remember this. This was many years ago that I read this. But at the end of his life, as he was laying there dying, he regretted it, and he tried to tell them the secret to the code to stop it from happening. And it was the prime difference, and the clue was the prime difference between Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which was the difference of atomic number, which was the number three. And he was holding up his own three-fingered hand and trying to tell them the clue and no one understood it. But the look at how that clue is framed. It is an example of a narrative of you know we when we when we as Americans talk about 
um, you know, the atomic bombs. We talk about the Manhattan Project. We talk about the secrecy of the science. We talk about radar and ending the war. We talk about the the weapon. We talk about, you know, uranium-257 uh, or whatever the two different isotopes are. We talk about the difference between them. We talk about Fatboy and Lumen. We don't talk about people getting nuked. Yeah. So, like, that perspective yeah. of having someone who comes from these affected places and saying, this is what your history means to people who were there. Yeah. I think that is a really strong guiding principle or example of tone to strive for that would result in a really compassionate and I think powerful yeah. way of examining history in this similar kind of context. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, that would be a really good way to kind of structure the film somehow too with that sort of incentive question that people have to answer and then they have to go around. Yeah. Like it's a different you... way to do the clue, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you could look at stuff like, um, you know, if you had, for example, um, like if you want to do something with slavery, for example, which I think you would have to, but to inscribe the clue in like some kind of famous image or whatever. And I think part of being historical fiction, alternate fiction like this means you have to, necess I think by some necessity, unless you're relying on very obscure things, you have to take things that are known and make changes and pervert them to a certain degree. You have to tell lies because yeah. it's a story. Yeah. Yep. But if yeah, you have a famous image, um, so I think if you inscribe the clue in the images of the suffering or in like the tool, like inscribed in like the handle of a historical whip, for example, like, you know, this was, oh, damn, you yes. know, this was Andrew Jackson's slave whip and whip and it has the Masonic clue on it. And then you have to confront the fact that this is a whip for slaves. Yep. And that Andrew Jackson was a monster. That yeah. would be great. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or even in historical paintings that we have those narratives about, like, I think pretty much everybody knows that painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. Like, everyone knows that. Yeah. And I also think you could make a... I, I really like the painting idea because I, I'm i not an art historian. I don't know specific paintings, but I do know that there are yeah. some that I have seen about slavery and plantation life and so on. But I think it would be a great statement to hide clues in the victims because we don't look at the victims um look at like a famous painting of uh you know uh how the west was you know f uh the I, calling it a war is not even proper but you know conflict between uh colonizers and native american tribes and then like inscribing secrets and messages in the images of the natives because we don't look at them we don't examine them closely not as a white society. I know academics do, and that's part of where that kind of secret society, secret history comes from. But we, when we look at those paintings, I think as a broad, general, Eurocentric society, we look at them and we say, oh, here are these historical figures fighting these Native Americans or whipping these slaves. They're not people in the way that the oppressors are in art. Absolutely. And like even thinking a little bit more now about that Emmanuel, the, the painting is by Emmanuel Lutze. That's the one that I'm referencing. The one where, you know, like George Washington is like astride on top of a boat and there's a bunch of guys pushing ice out of the way across the Delaware. One of the main oar men in the painting is a black man. Like that is an interesting um, piece of visual analysis that I just don't think I've ever seen anyone talk about in a film before. I know that they engage with that at the museum where it's held, but I, I don't 
know if people know much about that. So that's I mean, one of those things, too, where you get the I, chance to address that, that, that narrative. That does kind of prove my point, I think, about the invisibility yeah. of these things. Because I've yeah. seen images of that painting many times throughout my life, and I do not know that. I have never yeah. looked at anyone but Washington in that painting. Yeah, and I mean, the painting's engineered to be that way, but... Um... But yeah, I think that's a great idea of thinking about, like, excavating these hidden histories. Like, that is a worthwhile project for a national treasure. Yeah. And I do think there's film. also a great, um, how do I say this? There is, I think, a historical precedence for hiding messages in art of being subversive yeah. while being commissioned. And I don't have any specific examples. And I don't want to throw out oh, I specific examples. I'll ask you for some. But I know there are examples yeah. of, you know, we're going to force you to make this art, so I'm going to make it like this. And it's what you asked for, but I've hidden little details in it that are just kind of funny. Like um, Michelangelo. Um, I think it's Michelangelo. Uh, God touching Adam. And it's shaped like mm -hmm. the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that where... You're trying where you're told to make one thing, but because the people who are in control of the narrative are not the people making the art, um, yeah. the subversive messages can be slipped in. I think that if you wrote an alternate history and you injected the conspiracy through artists and those who present history who were there at the time, I think there's a precedent that says that that's something that, while may not have happened on the kind of scale I think that this movie would require is something that does have an element of truth to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that would work pretty well. There's a precedent for it. And there's also a way to kind of like reel it back from the Dan Brown crazy train, I guess is what I'll call it. Because that is just so far out there um, with The Last Supper. I, I think there's a way to make this look fairly logical and to be like, no, actually, like, this is what the artist did and that's a real thing. And yeah, yeah, I really like this idea. And I, I, I do think maybe to ground it, I think you do probably need one or two real examples just to establish the plausibility of everything else. Um, because one of the things that they do in this movie is they do use real historical documents, like the Declaration of Independence. It doesn't really have a map on the back of it, but it is a real document, and they do engage somewhat with the themes of what it says and what it is as a historical document. Um, the Silence Do Good Letters, they're talking about real things. So I, I think you'd have... Like, do you have any more examples of that kind of subversive art creation for us? Because I would like more than just Michelangelo saying this is what a brain looks like. Well, I'm thinking specifically about, like, American history and the history of enslaved Africans making pottery that had messages on it that would be sold at market. Um, that specifically is a very rich point of history. And these are these very plain-looking um, jars. They were made by a man whose name was Dave. That's a great example of that. Um, there's... There's a lot of other things, too. It it just depends on what kind of narrative you want to go for. Like, the narrative of repression, which certainly um, there are people who have been able to locate that in Michelangelo's work. Um, there's other narratives of, like, not allowing people to write, and then they secretly learn how to do so. Um, there's also, oh man, there were so many enslaved African Americans who were part of spy rings during oh, the establishment of the country. Um, Annie, they helped I have a preserve question. us. 
Does, Coper- like, yeah. does Coperica count? I think I'm saying that wrong. Capoeira? Capoeira? The dancing Capoeira? fighting. Capoeira. Yeah, that's the yeah. one. Because Capoeira. it's yeah. disguised as a dance, but it is a form of martial art. It's fighting. Right. So, like, Most definitely. Uh, yeah. Th- and like having something that, like, I, I do think that in a weird way kind of fits the criteria that we're talking about where it's about yeah. subversion and it's yeah. using art to subvert. It's like if you looked at, like, the fucking, the Bayou Tapestry and it secretly had martial arts instructions on it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I just really want to see this movie now. Like, I I think we haven't really been specific as to the structure of this, but I don't think we need to really pitch a movie beat by beat for this because we've gotten ethos where, like, th- this is a thing where, like, if I were to try and write this right now... I'd want to start going to museums and looking at art and looking for places where I could inject a bit of reality and not not like necessarily subvert it for my own narrative purposes, but to find places and spaces where there's enough leeway and, you know, forgotten history or like commonly accepted lies that we could, you know, nudge things into place and start inserting little bits and building. Because this is a point where... It's not a complete pitch because we don't have the historical research, which I think would be necessary. That's Already I think one done. of the yeah yeah. That's I think one of the failings of this movie is the historical the historical research for this movie is just go sit in in a high school history class, you know. Yeah, and there are some times where it's okay, and there's other times where it's not. So, like for instance, those buttons described uh, the buttons that Abby collects. They're described as campaign buttons. That's not what they were. They were inauguration buttons. Um, not that that makes a huge difference, but it is important to make that distinction in the movie, which they don't do. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I just I really want to see a movie about these hidden histories that are really there, right? Like that was what was so cool about Hidden Figures. It's it's this exciting story about people who had to face all this crap and then didn't get credit for all of their work getting us to the moon. And, you know, like, all of a sudden, here are these three amazing women who did all this work. I think that's part of the fun of the historical movie is telling audiences, you know, like, it's not just about the action scenes. It's about telling people, like, hey, there are stories that you've never heard before, and they are really freaking cool. Yeah. Yeah. No. Because I, I think that is, you know, the that is the narrative of the alt-history conspiracy theory story is there's a history you haven't heard, and it's fucking crazy. And it's wild and imaginative, but also real history is kind of fascinating. And I think what we've described isn't necessarily a movie pitch, but it's an ethos for creating that movie. And I... I, In a more ethical way, yeah. Exactly. I think. I think it's good guidelines and I kind of want to see it. Well, I I don't kind of... I really want to see it. We're probably not (laughs) going to get to, but... We're not going to see it. (laughs) I don't know. Who knows? I mean, there's been a, a major uptick... And this is specifically by uh, African-American directors and creatives. And, you know, like, that's because this is in my field, so I know about it. But, like, Ava DuVernay is working on stuff. Um, Jordan Peele is working on stuff that will potentially draw, you know, like, a lot more interest and attention to stories like this. It's just it's not going to be framed within the context of an action film. I am going to say this. If any famous or upcoming directors or screenwriters are listening to this podcast and you want to make this movie, go ahead. We don't even need credit. Please, feel free. Like, we don't we care. Just want to we see just it. want to see it. Exactly. <laughs> we just want this genre to get better. 
Yeah. Anyways, um, I think that's it. Unless you have any that's other rap. closing thoughts you had. No. I, I think I got it all out. Yeah, no. I'm <laughs> I'm actually really... I'm surprised at how excited I am for this because, like, that was Same. a bit of a whim is, like, how do we make this movie better? And that, that all comes from that one line, the, you know, Library of Alexandria. But there there's... The idea of this movie isn't inherently bad. It's just that the writing, I think, is lazy. It's very trope. It, it's a very 2004 film. It's so Bruckheimer. And that's, I think, its greatest <laughs> so, failure. Is yeah. it's not ambitious enough to really be more than the base level of what you expect from the tagline. A hundred percent. It feels very uh, formulaic. And kind of like, you know, like, this is a big budget film, so the studio is making a lot of very safe choices in this film as well. And I, I think that shows up, but the screenwriting is not particularly great for this one. So, yeah. So I think, you know, attach a visionary director and writer and try again. Hey, and Ryan I think Johnson. <laughs> get, yeah, hey, get Ryan, Ryan Johnson. Get, get Jordan Peele on it. Oh, Jordan Peele. You know, ah, gotta love him. I, I I want this. Okay, so anyways, this has been the Movie More, your movie autopsy <laughs> yeah. podcast. I've been your host Silvio Emery. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Double Doc MD. And I've been Annie Neller. And as always, you all can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at at Lights and Music. Um, our intro music is Trouble by Ipso Factopus. You can find a link to their Bandcamp in the description. Um. We have a new Patreon now. We've moved things over. It's uh, patreon.com slash doubledocmd. It is no longer slash... We've moved that. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you to our patrons for making all this possible. And uh, thank you everyone for listening and sharing and talking about these things because it really brings joy to my heart. I want to actually honestly share a piece of feedback that I got recently. Is oh. Someone listened to our Ant-Man and the Wasp episode and said... they. T- I was discussing the movie with them, and they told me, yeah, I listened to your episode. That's why I thought this one was worth going to see. And that just... Oh, wow, that's so nice. Oh, yeah. okay. No, it, it, it touches my heart. Thank and you. Yeah. We love all of you. Y'all are great. Thank we you do. guys so much. Good night. Bye-bye. <laughs>